0: I begin by referring to the encyclical letter, Fides et Ratio, of Pope John Paul II. He identified three tasks that he wishes contemporary philosophers would carry out to sort of renew philosophy for the good of humanity and for the good of the Church. First, he writes, philosophy needs, first of all, to recover its sapiential dimension as a search for the ultimate and overarching meaning of life. End quote. Philosophy is the love not merely of the facts, information, ideas, theories, or even knowledge. It is the love of wisdom. Now, it's not easy to distinguish wisdom from knowledge, and only a few contemporary philosophers have even tried, but the Pope's remarks tell us that wisdom has something to do with the ability to answer the deepest questions concerning the meaning of life or reality as a whole. Yet, he goes on to say, Quote, this sapiential function could not be performed by a philosophy which was not itself a true and authentic knowledge. Addressed, that is, not only to particular and subordinate aspects of reality, functional, formal, or utilitarian, but to its total and definitive truth, to the very being of the object which is known. This prompts a second requirement that philosophy verify the human capacity to know the truth. To come to a knowledge which can reach objective truth by means of that adequatio rei et intellectus to which the scholastic doctors referred. Quote. So we want not just wisdom when we go in search of answers to the deepest questions concerning the meaning of life and reality, we want true answers. For only then can we live out our lives in reality rather than in a state of delusion, and give ourselves to what truly satisfies rather than to some counterfeit form of happiness. The pope goes on to say, quote, "The two requirements already stipulated imply a third, the need for philosophy for a philosophy of genuinely metaphysical range, capable that is of transcending empirical data in order to attain something absolute, ultimate and foundational in its search for truth." End quote. This third task calls upon philosophers to say something different and more than what scientists tell us, something different and more than what we can empirically verify, yet something true, something one can build a life on. It seems to me that all three of these tasks amount to what the Pope considers to be one constitutive work of philosophy, to give an account of the meaning of life or the meaning of reality as a whole, not an account restricted or limited to repeating what the empirical sciences tell us, but going beyond them in what it has to say, and showing that human beings can know this account of reality to be true, even though it is not verified by more science. This threefold work of philosophy may seem impossible to fulfill. But there is one topic of ancient and medieval philosophy that admirably executes all three tasks at once. The topic is the principle of non-contradiction. I don't say that the the grasping or discussing of the principle of non-contradiction, henceforth I'll just refer to the PNC as uh, it's commonly called. I don't say that grasping or discussing the PNC fulfills these three tasks completely but only that doing so is a good beginning. Today I want to show how the act of grasping the principle of non-contradiction verifies the human capacity to know the truth, presents us with an absolute truth beyond empirical or scientific verification, and even speaks to the question of what life is all about. I make only one proviso. I say that the ancient and medieval discussions of the principle admirably fulfill these tasks. Contemporary philosophy tends to deflate the joy of the ancient discovery of the first principle of being as such. So I'm going to proceed by presenting two disputed questions. Uh, The first, I will proceed by presenting these questions in exactly the way Aquinas did. The first question is whether human beings have the capacity to know the truth. The second question is whether the principle of non-contradiction is as significant as the ancient and medieval philosophers thought it was, or whether it's just hype. The first question is meant to be some basic philosophy and a practical aid to those living in a skeptical context. And the second question is meant to address some more technical issues and modern philosophical objections. So let us proceed with the two questions. First question, whether human beings have the capacity to know truth? And it seems not. I'm going to give several objections. First, objection one, the fact of disagreement. It is a fact that people disagree. They disagree vehemently about the deepest questions about the world, the meaning of life, right and wrong, and especially about religion and politics. They disagree both at a time and over time. At any one point in time, there are rival answers to many questions, and over time, our theories and accounts of reality change. We discard yesterday's certitudes all the time, and likewise, adopt new ones. If human beings could really know the truth, however, there would, be, there would not be so much disagreement. Our judgments would all be like the ones we make in math. Therefore human beings cannot really know the truth, except maybe in math, but even mathematicians disagree. The fact of disagreement. Number two, the fact of deception. It is a fact that people are often deceived, and sometimes deceived very deeply. I myself have been deceived at times. Furthermore, appearances are questionable. When I look down railroad tracks, they seem to converge, but really they don't. When I press my eyeball, it seems like there are two clocks on the wall, but really there are not. Also, I could be on hallucinatory drugs right now, drugs that cause me to forget that I took them. I cannot rule that out it's always possible for us to be deceived so how can i know really know anything how can i know anything really is as it seems it seems i cannot the same goes for any other human being if there are other human beings okay so number 2 the fact of deception number 3 antinomies everywhere It's wrong to believe something without sufficient evidence, but there's never really sufficient evidence for any truth claim because for every argument brought forward for a position, there's always some opposing argument or other out there. Antinomies, you could say, abound. As Sextus Empiricus used to say, against one argument, there's always another. Therefore, human beings do not have the capacity to know truth. Number four, subjective perspectives. When two people look at a tree, each person has his or her own point of view. The tree appears differently to each person, perhaps they look from different locations, perhaps at different times, under different conditions. But no two people see exactly the same tree. So, so it is with all other matters. People have different histories, experiences, languages, educations, principles, goals, and ideas. Let us call the synthesis of one's personal history, experience, language, education, principles, goals, and ideas, one's perspective. Everyone has his her, or her own unique perspective. No one can step outside his or her perspective, and no one can step outside of all perspectives. Therefore, no one can really know the truth. Number 5. Solipsism or the I cannot get outside of my own mind objection, which I hear formulated uh, by students even before they've read Descartes. It just seems to be a way that people tend to think about things. I do not have cognitive access to anything other than my own mental states. Although I have access to my own beliefs, concepts, ideas, intentions, sensations, and emotions, I have no access to things in themselves. I cannot get outside of my own mind, to know whether things are really there or whether they match how my own mental states depict them. The same holds for everyone else, if anyone else is really out there. Therefore, neither I nor anyone else can really know the truth. Number 6, Fallibilism. Although scientists seem to know a lot of truth, it is not really so. Both scientists and philosophers of science commonly say that all scientific accounts of reality are fallible. All theories are improvable or dispensable. The best theories and most profound paradigms to date are never more than the best one to date and fallible. Therefore, the impressive results of science do not show us that human beings can really know the truth, but only that we can model reality with more or less predictive power at any one point in time. Number seven, and last, constructivism. Theory construction in science or any other uh, uh, discipline, we might say, is a social affair It is subject to social norms and circumstances. People who challenge the principles of chemistry, for example, are excluded from the discipline of chemistry. People who openly defy evolution will never get tenure in a credible biology faculty. Editorial positions and paper publications are subject to politics and manipulation. Whatever research is done each year depends on who gets the grants to do which research projects. Grants are doled out based on the values of the grant committees. So the latest science reflects the social conditions under which we construct them rather than things in themselves. Science, therefore, does not show us that human beings can know the truth but only that we can construct theories according to our social conditions. So those are eight objections that I think are standard sorts of concerns uh, difficulties that people raise when they are confronted with the question of whether we can know anything at all. They're causes of despair, typical causes of despair we might say. Alright, so on the contrary in the metaphysics book 4 chapter 3 Aristotle presents the principle of non-contradiction, the PNC as the first principle of being that no one can deny in thought. If at least one human knows the PNC, then humans have the capacity to know truth. But many people do know the PNC, and therefore humans have the capacity to know the truth. So, my response to all of this. There are three ways to formulate the principle of non-contradiction. These are three ways that have come down through, we could say, the Thomist tradition. First, it is impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time. And this way of reading it, in other words, it is impossible for X to be F and not to be F at the same time and in the same respects. Second, it is impossible for something to exist and not to exist at the same time. Here in, the, here, in the second version, the emphasis is on the act of existence rather than on attribute possession. These first two versions of the principle are sometimes called metaphysical versions of the principle because they are about things or beings. The third version of the principle, in the way that Thomas have formulated it, is typically called the logical version in the tradition, And it goes like this, it is impossible for a statement to be true and false at the same time in all the same senses of the terms. The logical version of the principle is about statements or assertions and their truth values. The principle of non-contradiction, Aristotle says, is a first principle. It cannot be proven since every argument presupposes it. Its truth can only be grasped or understood with a kind of insight. Second, the principle of non-contradiction is self-evident. It has an evidential quality so compelling that it forces assent, or so it seems. Yeah, It makes whoever consider it to see it. Thought sometimes, though, though one sometimes has to consider it for a while and draw some distinctions in order to grasp what is being said. This is the common experience when you teach the principle of non-contradiction, it takes a, f- a little while for the students to kind of hear it, to grasp what's being said, the meanings of the terms, but as soon as it's it's said, the response, as soon as those distinctions are drawn and they grasp what is being said, the proposition that's in the words, it's, al- it's always, yes, of course. Aristotle says, though, that although it can be denied Ah, so it's, it has a kind of self-evidence to it. Aristotle says that although it can be denied in words, no one can deny it in thought. Quote, it is impossible to hold the same thing to be and not to be, he says. End quote. The most plausible interpretation of what he means here is that no one actually, no one can actually and concurrently think a contradictory state of affairs, although obviously people can hold contradictions in habitu or dispositionally. Finally, it is impossible to be mistaken about the PNC, Aristotle says, for a person is mistaken about something when he or she thinks or judges something is so and it, it is not so. Now necessarily, in order for someone to be mistaken about the PNC, the person would have to think impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time and yet it would have to be possible for something to be and not to be at the same time. Therefore to show that one could be mistaken about the PNC one must hold it possible for something to be and not to be at the same time, but no one can hold that in thought given the self-evidence of the principle. Now we are in a, now we are in a position to show that humans have the capacity to know the truth. For if one simply sees that the principle of non-contradiction is true and cannot be mistaken about it, then one knows it. Here I'm simply stating some sufficient conditions uh, of knowledge, sufficient conditions for knowing this particular principle. I'm not giving a general account of knowledge in general. But if one knows the principle of non-contradiction, then one knows a truth, for whatever one knows is a truth. Therefore, if one simply sees the principle of non-contradiction is true and cannot be mistaken, then one knows a truth. And if one knows a truth, then at least one human being has the capacity to know truth. Whoever can simply see the principle of non-contradiction, in fact, can know truth. Let us now consider the way, in which, the way in which I know the principle of non-contradiction. I do not know it by a particular act of sensory verification. I do not check the truth of it by turning to something I can see, taste, smell, touch, or hear right now. Like, for example, when I want to check whether the water in the shower is hot, I stick out my hand to see, to sense it. That's not how I determine whether the principle of non-contradiction is true. Rather, I know the PNC by a priori reflection and have a priori justification for it. Since I know it by a priori reflection, the PNC, quote, transcends the empirical data to use the language of John Paul II. I do not accept the PNC because my five senses tell me so. Also, I do not hold it because science says so. Scientists do not double check the principle of non-contradiction, but they presuppose it in everything that they do. People knew the principle of non-contradiction long before modern science even came to be. Therefore, not only do human beings have the capacity to know the truth, but they can know at least some truth without a current sensory verification and without modern scientific reasoning. The human capacity to know truth, therefore, is not limited to knowing empirically or scientifically. Finally, let us note with care the distinction between the metaphysical and logical versions of the principle. This distinction is present in the Thomist tradition, but is absent in contemporary discussions. Aristotle discusses the principle of non-contradiction in his book, The Metaphysics. He doesn't discuss it in his logical works all that much, only obliquely and indirectly. He's looking for the principles and the properties of being as being Thanks to our knowing the metaphysical versions of the PNC, we know that all beings as such are self-consistent. But therefore, we know something about all beings and about beings as such. And since we know something about all beings, we know something about reality as a whole. To know something about reality as a whole is to come into some possession of wisdom or into possession of some wisdom in Aristotle's sense of the term, a kind of knowledge of reality as a whole. And since we know something about beings as such, then we know something ultimate, to use again John Paul II's language, we know being at least a bit and nothing is prior to being. Our brief consideration of the PNC therefore shows that humans have the capacity to know truth, to know a truth that transcends empirical data and scientific reasoning, an ultimate truth about reality as a whole because it is about all beings as such. And perhaps this principle even has something to do with what being human is all about. Perhaps the point of being human is to know the truth, to live consistently with it, and perhaps even to worship the truth. That's the end of my response. Now I'll turn to the objections, okay? Now well, just an initial general observation, all of the objections from a logical point of view are non-sequiturs, considered as deductive arguments, or even inductive ones. They're t- kind of weak. Yeah, Therefore, they're inductive at best, but really the a, a better way to consider them is as aporiae, certain just mental knots that come up as part of human life. So instead of trying to take them on necessarily as technical objections, I'd rather just give some sage. Ad, try to give some sage advice about each one and sort of how to unravel it. Okay, so let's deal with number one first. People disagree. The fact of disagreement, as to the premises of this objection or or the points of this set of this difficulty, there is much disagreement about particular things, but there is no disagreement about the first principle of being as such. People can disagree about the PNC in words, but not in thought. That's the great claim of Aristotle. And when I think of the principle of non-contradiction and the experience, the force, I don't even have the capacity to doubt it. It's not a voluntary assent. So uh, a good, I think Aristotle is on to something when he says no one can deny it except in words. To the second, the fact of deception. Although people are often deceived in particular matters, there is at least one thing about which it is not possible to be mistaken. It's not possible to be mistaken about the PNC, or at least no one has been able to show that it's possible to be mistaken about the PNC. This does not by itself defeat skepticism about the senses, or sensory skepticism. It does show that being as such is accessible and at least some of its features are able to be grasped without the possibility of error. It is possible to know being as such, at least a little bit. To the third objection that there are antinomies everywhere. Antinomies do abound, and they are cause for consternation, that's true. But they cause consternation only because we know before we even consider them that reality cannot be both one way and the opposite at the same time. So before we even consider antinomies or take alarm at them, we already know something about reality as such. Furthermore, Aristotle shows us how antinomies or something like antinomies, aporiae, actually serve growth in our knowledge or understanding of the truth. For antinomies or aporiae provide occasion for more insights and more insights lead us to still more of the truth. To the fourth, subjective perspectives. The principle of non-contradiction is not anyone's personal perspective, it is a pure and simple truth. That we have the capacity to grasp it shows that we have the capacity to transcend personal perspectives to grasp a pure and simple truth. Furthermore, although everyone has a personal perspective, in the sense defined, here, a synthesis of one's personal education, experience, etc. Aristotle's approach to the truth through the gathering of aporiae and noesis shows how each personal perspective is, in fact, a doorway to the truth, the proverbial door that no one can fail to miss, he says. Number five to the fifth solipsism, or I cannot get outside of my own mind. Modern philosophy, which is really epistemology, at the beginning. Begins with a strong dichotomy between the internal world and the external world, mind and reality. First, we draw the distinction, we as moderns tend to draw the distinction between internal world and external world, and then we wonder how to get from the internal to the external. The philosophy of Aristotle and Aquinas, however, does not begin with any such dichotomy. I exist prior to any distinction between the internal world and the external world. I exist prior to drawing any distinction between the internal world and the external world. And prior to any distinction between internal world and external world, being is, as Parmenides says. Mind, on Aquinas' approach, we could say, to rephrase it perhaps in contemporary terms, mind is nothing but access to being. To the sixth, fallibilism. The scientific account of things is not the ultimate account of things. Science is not first philosophy. Rather, human beings have some knowledge of being as such prior to and independently of doing science or taking its results on authority. For example, we know the principle of non-contradiction. We cannot be mistaken about the PNC. Furthermore, William Wallace's Thomistic account of science contends that scientists have arrived at some demonstrative knowledge of nature in Aristotle's sense of demonstration. For example, it seems to be demonstrated that the moon is spherical. There's no reason to expect a future paradigm to overturn the claim that the moon is spherical. To the seventh, constructivism. Research and inquiry is a social act, and therefore it is subject to the vicissitudes of the practical life, But the object of such inquiry and research is not. The object of the inquiry and research is the truth of things. We do not construct truth but discover it, and the principle of non-contradiction is an example. We do not make the PNC to be true, but it evidences itself forcefully to the mind. The principle of non-contradiction is beyond the politics of the scientific establishment because it is known prior to doing science. To consider this truth about all beings as such requires no special research grants. Therefore, this principle, at least, is not merely a reflection of our social and political situation. So, that's the end of the first question, whether human beings have the capacity to know the truth. And obviously, one could raise many more questions. That's the idea of disputed questions. One leads to another. So, let's turn now to a second question, Uh, this would be based upon more modern sorts of technical considerations in philosophy. The question would be, is the PNC just a bunch of hype? I wish I had more, a more technical way of saying it, but that seems to be the upshot of a lot of objections or points that are commonly made. So, is the PNC just hype? It seems to be so. Here are objection number one, the triviality objection. Let S stand for any subject term whatsoever. It is redundant and trivial to say S is S, but the PNC is just such a sentence, for it basically says, the same is the same, or rather it says, the idea of white is the idea of white. All of that, by the way, is a quote from John Locke. I'm quoting Locke. How does he understand the principle of non-contradiction? You're basically saying S is S, or the same is the same, or the idea of white is the idea of white. Therefore, it's a trivial statement. And this, Locke says, is why it's self-evident. It's a relation of ideas. Number two, the nothing follows objection. The principle of non-contradiction is the proposition that it's not possible that P and not P. But from that proposition, it does not follow that P. It also does not follow that not P. It also does not follow that Q. Nothing follows concerning what is actual. Therefore, the PNC does not tell us the way the world actually is. Uh, note, this is also, uh, this is my way of interpreting the following text from John Locke. Quote, "'Tis plain that they," these maxims, the principle of non-contradiction and identity, or not, nor have been the foundations whereon any science has been built. There has been a great deal of talk propagated from scholastic men, Of sciences and the maxims on which they have been built, but it has been my ill luck never to meet with any such sciences, much less any built on these two maxims. What is, is, and it is impossible for the same to be and not to be." So I think that's a version of the nothing follows objection basically. And the third objection, the it's not about the world objection. There are two versions. Number one, it's knowable a priori. We know a priori that it's not possible that P and not P. That is, we know the P and C prior to any particular act of verifying it through sensory experience. But no proposition known a priori is about the world. Only those statements we know to be true a posteriori from a particular act of verification through the senses are about the world. Therefore, the principle of non-contradiction is not about the world. And B, another version of the same objection, it's a tautology. The proposition, it's not the case that both P and not P, is a tautology in logic. It's a logical truth. It is true in every possible evaluation, uh, but it is true merely by virtue of the meaning of the truth functional connective and, now no tautology is about the world. and Therefore, the principle of non-contradiction is not about the world. So, on the contrary, the Thomist tradition identifies and distinguishes different versions of the principle. There's the metaphysical versions, which are about being, reality, things in themselves, and there are the logical versions, which are about statements, and the truth values and the properties of statements. So, what's the response? All of these objections are basically raised from inside a kind of uh, dichotomy, a modern dichotomy between subject and object, internal world and external world, a priori, a posteriori, Logical truth versus truth in general, or something like this. There's a whole series of dichotomies that it kind of takes for granted. And furthermore, it takes for granted the development of the logic of the 20th century. And it insists first on translating the principle of non-contradiction into these languages and then saying, well, I guess there's no significance here. We can't figure out what the significance of this is now. And the general response to all of that would be, well, maybe that's a bad way to try to understand the principle of non-contradiction. Maybe you would understand it more deeply and more profoundly by going back to the historical sources, seeing how they understood it, and considering it as a, princip- as a truly metaphysical principle about beings. Okay? And try to make sense of it that way. And there are ways that we can try to do that. And that's what I think we'll leave open for discussion more and more. Let me turn right to the objections, just for the sake of time. First, the triviality objection. Locke misinterprets the principle of non-contradiction in light of his epistemological confusion. The principle of does not say that the same is the same, and it doesn't say that the idea of white is the idea of white. If what it is saying, must be, for, must be formulated in subject predicate form, the statement would be that all beings are essentially self-consistent. That might be one way you could rephrase it. As to this, the idea of white is the idea of white, let us remember it is one thing to think of white and another thing to think of the idea of white. But Locke consistently confuses the two sorts of acts from the beginning to the end of his epistemology and the same confusion plagues his account of the maxims or first principles. To the second objection, the nothing follows objection. I think this is one of the most significant ones actually. Although nothing follows from the principle of non-contradiction just by itself, and by itself it is not the starting point of a rationalist system from which we can deduce the world like Spinoza, nonetheless, it is a light Here's where shifting back to the ancient understanding of knowledge and principles as a light, as opposed to a mere proposition from which you deduce things may be helpful. It is a light that illuminates many truths, perhaps all truths, in a dialectical context, especially by way of the Socratic elenchus. Consider the incoherence of saying there is no truth or human language cannot express truth. Thanks to the principle of non-contradiction, We know that these claims are false, and we know also that their contradictory opposites must be true. There is truth, and human language can express it. Furthermore, we also know that any philosophy which entails that there is no truth, or that human language cannot express it, cannot be a true account of reality. In fact, all anti-realist views in metaphysics and epistemology tend to run into just exactly this kind of incoherence self-contradiction plagues anti-realisms. So, although there's one sense in which nothing follows, on the other hand, the principle of non-contradiction is a very bright light that allows you to make all kinds of further judgments about what is and is not true, even though it's not by way of in modo geometrico. To the third, it's not about the world. The PNC is noble a priori, But I deny that no a priori statement is about the world. Such claims, claims that, for example, all a priori statements are not about the world, are usually made inside the modern dichotomy between internal world and external world. It means that the principle of non-contradiction is not about the external world. But the PNC is about beings as such, and being is prior to any distinction we might draw between internal world and external world, or any other kind of world, actual world, possible world. Because the PNC is about beings as such, it applies to beings prior to and independently of whatever world they may be in, internal world, external world, actual world, possible world. What makes the PNC to be true is not the rules of logic, but being as such. Being is the truth maker, of the principle of non-contradiction because being is the truth maker of every proposition. That's where I'll end with the two disputed questions. So that's what I have to set before you is some sort of reflections on the principle of non-contradiction. The idea is first of all to address what we might call radical despair about the human ability to know truth uh, and deal with common objections that people Race or aporiae that they have, and then also some attempt to deal with ways in which contemporary philosophy, modern philosophy um, deflates the significance or aims to deflate the significance of the principle of non-contradiction. So that's all, thank you very much.